This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're talking to anthropologist Ben Chang. He's going to be telling us all about the recent clashes in Guatemala between a indigenous resistance movement and a company that is trying to dig out the nickel ore in their region. The police moved in, blasted everybody with tear gas because the indigenous people set up a roadblock. It's very interesting. It goes quite deep and it involves corruption, the government, indigenous people being murdered and Russian companies. Very interesting. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front and you want more, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. So there's this, uh, this situation in Guatemala where the, uh, the indigenous people have set up these roadblocks um, trying to stop this nickel ore mine going into operation or whatever it is. The police, they've responded, tear gas, gone over the top, everything like that. Um, ex- explain to us what, what is going on exactly, because I don't know a lot about this region. And from what I'm hearing, uh, it sounded like things are getting quite nasty over there with this this situation with the nickel mine. Actually, a nickel mine uh, that has nickel, been around sorry. in the country yeah, since, uh, since the um, middle of the last century. Um, Guatemala at that time was going through a very serious civil war. Actually, uh, the civil war here is the reason why genocide was codified in law internationally. Uh, it was just really that bad. And, uh, well, essentially a lot of the civil war here was basically American interests, uh, being defended by, uh, military, uh, governments that were propped up by American, uh, governments, of course. Uh, back in the day. And so the thing is, this uh, nickel mine was acquired by Russian interests um, around 2010, and uh, they basically got the, the mine back up and running, and they've been exporting nickel uh, basically to Ukraine um, ever since. And the, what the, the, let's say the, the issue with this mine is that um, it has uh, basically been violating human rights for its entire existence. Um, uh, among other things, like uh, one of the things that uh, happened was um, like when the mine was being built, they moved a lot of communities from where they were. Um, there is actually a case where several women were uh, mass raped uh, during during the uh, the operation and the and the and the construction of the mine. And this is a case that is still being handled in Canadian courts. So this mine has a long history. There were also some university students that were uh, murdered. I actually personally knew two of them. Uh, that were murdered um, close to the mine. And I can't uh, legally say that the mine did it, um, but they did hire the lawyers that um, stopped the case going through the courts. And it's still an ongoing case. So the the current clashes basically are because the uh, mine uh, was basically suspended by our Supreme Court in uh, 2019 for not uh, doing the indigenous people's consultation that is mandated by the uh, international labor organization. Um, and well, what happened was they did do a couple of consultations, but they were basically a farce. They were poorly executed. Uh, they did not uh, take into account all of the communities that they should have. And a lot of the leaders that approved the mine were basically bought off by the mine. 
the Supreme Court, which is not exactly anything of a democratic or actually well-run institution in this country, it, it was to the point where the Supreme Court itself also said, hey, you know, this actually needs to be done. Um, the current clash happened because the mine, uh, despite claiming to have suspended, has still been bringing materials into the mining site. The thing is that they have their own processing plant right next to the mining uh, site, and it is technically owned by a different company, and therefore they do not technically need the same mining license to be active to continue operating. And they do um, process nickel from other mines in the area, but all of these are owned by the same small group of um, Russian uh, businessmen, right? And so uh, basically the... Um, the uh, local Kekshi Maya community that uh, has been uh, blocking the roads to stop the mine from operating tried to stop a, uh, a, a truck full of coal from going into the mine because it was needed uh, for the processing plant to operate. The uh, company tried to say, listen, the processing plant and the mine are not the same thing and therefore you are um, not allowed to bring, uh, you're not allowed to stop this material from going in. And the people in the community um, basically did not believe them and did not let the trucks through. Um, after about uh, two days of back and forth, what happened was the government just uh, went full uh, into repression mode. What they did was they had hundreds of policemen appear on the scene and start raining tear gas into the uh, the local uh, the local resistance movement. Uh, there were children there. There were elderly people there. And a lot of people were hurt. Uh, people who had homes along the highway had to evacuate their homes because there was so much tear gas. And then basically the police started forming phalanxes and uh, uh, marching the trucks into the processing plant. Uh, the reason the government was able to justify this is because uh, Guatemala has a very strange um, system here where we basically are legally allowed to declare uh, a state of siege, which is like a state of emergency, but uh, we can still declare a state of siege in this country. And what it does is it allows uh, use of force, it allows uh, the government to suspend constitutional rights, and it also allows the government to skip the legal protections against uh, excessive and unauthorized spending. So they can declare a state of siege and then, for example, repair military helicopters without going through the normal legal purchasing process. And so basically what happened was they declared a state of siege. And since Congress needs to ratify the state of siege within three days, they basically know that they had three days to do whatever they wanted. During these three days, uh, they raided the homes of a couple of local journalists that were doing most of the reporting, took all of their recording equipment. Uh, and briefly arrested one of them. And then, like, a lot of the people that were actually at the resistance that were shot up by the police were also uh, having their homes raided. They had uh, phones, bank cards, even, like, uh, physical printed copies of the Supreme Court sentencing document, um, like photocopies taken from their homes. And uh, basically, it's a fear tactic. There were helicopters flying overhead and things like this, and all of this was to get uh, one or I believe two trucks of coal into uh, the mining. Right. So that's a lot of um, that's a, that's a lot <laughs> of information right there. So let, let's let's just talk about the clashes uh, for a second. So these were indigenous people, right, that came down um, to these nickel mines when this situation broke out recently. 
Yes. So basically, um, uh, there, uh, like, when you when you talk about resistance movements in this country, most of them are essentially handed by local indigenous communities whose right to consultation and whose natural resources are being destroyed by these mining companies. And this is basically no exception. So there are something like 160 communities that are claiming that they are not being considered legally for this consultation process, and they are demanding to, at the very least, be heard. And they are, they basically had a roadblock set up outside of the mine. Uh, out of, for these 160 communities, what they do is that they send people to basically take turns to man the roadblock. And so at any given time, there are only about 40 people, uh, blocking the road. Um, the mining company, uh, their PR people have basically come out to say that the people that are at the roadblock are people that, uh, you know, are angry that they didn't get jobs at the mine. And so it's just these 40 people that are starting trouble, uh, which is a lie. They are basically representatives from, uh, like I said, about 160 communities. Mm. And are these like kind of, what are they, like militia groups or just like, you know, are they armed militia, paramilitary type, type groups? Are they just kind of, you know, angry locals or what? Yeah, they basically they are just uh, people with... Uh, with machetes, you know, they set up a roadblock, they uh, block the road, they use their machetes basically to uh, cut down uh, trees and block the road, and then they basically set up a camp there to watch and make sure that uh, none of the materials go in. So there are, there's really nothing in, in terms of like organized militia that you could speak of. This is very grassroots, very local communities trying to have their voices heard and being uh, basically squashed by overwhelming amounts of government force. Right. Um, so they set up these roadblocks, and the government came in pretty heavy um, from, the, from the images that you showed me. Maybe just go over that again. Like, what was their response to these roadblocks? So uh, essentially what happened was on the first day, um, the lawyer from the, community, from the company came to try to convince people that the uh, processing plants in the mine were not the same thing. So uh, when she showed up, there's actually videos of her showing up and uh, she's surrounded by a lot of high ranking police. And when this uh, conversation about whether or not the materials could go in was not fruitful for the company, immediately hundreds of, of police officers were, were, were brought in, as well as uh, members of the Guatemalan army. I believe there were two army helicopters flying overhead. There were also hundreds of police officers with riot shields and uh, tear gas the canister launchers. Um, and like there, there are videos that you can find. Um, there's, a, there's a local uh, news uh, organization called Prensa Comunitaria, which, uh, you know, they, they're basically a, um, a loose network of local journalists. Mm -hmm. And they've been getting most of the information out of the area. They've uh, brought out pictures of like hundreds of police cars lined up along the road. And um, it, that, that's essentially what they did. They brought in overwhelming amounts of, of human force and uh, air force. Right. Um, and this, so, so they've introduced a curfew over this, right? Like the, the government is taking it obviously really seriously. Um, I, I, I wouldn't know if seriously is the term. Uh, like I said, uh, this uh, issue with the uh, state of siege that uh, the government uh, has like a legal right to set up is how they the curfew um but they do this all the time it is it is like something that should be very serious very heavy very hardcore and they basically throw it out there every time that they they wish to somehow um you know ju justify illegal spending or somehow uh bring to bear large amounts of forces to spend uh rights 
For example, in the context of the pandemic, a state of emergency or a state of siege was declared several times. Um, and we were basically under curfew for a better part of, um, of uh, 2019, I'm sorry, 2020, uh, with the pandemic as a justification. It got to the point where the Congress simply stopped approving these states of siege. So uh, it, it, by many people in the populace, this whole idea of a curfew of a state of siege being declared has become somewhat frivolous because it is being used frivolous. Right. So when you say state of siege, from what I've read, basically they're under martial law, right? For basically saying, like, stop mining on our land. Yes, exactly. They're, they are essentially under martial law. And uh, uh, one, one thing to, to, to note is I, I believe... Uh, uh, there, there is also information that can be read about how there's this huge case going on where the owners of these Russian nickel mines were actually uh, bribing the president. And there's evidence that they, they, they it's called, they've given it the name of the uh, magic carpet case mm. because uh, millions of dollars were wrapped into uh, a carpet and delivered, hand delivered to his um, apartment in one of the uh, more uh, high end parts of the city. And uh, it, it be, the source of the money has been traced back to the owners of this nickel mine. And uh, in basically, in exchange for this, this government has reactivated a lot of mining efforts. And also, they were given a, um, a ridiculously good deal for use of port space. It was something like 900 times lower than what legally they were supposed to be paying per, per square meter. And so the fact that they, that he is using this huge amount of government resources and this uh, martial law declaration to defend this mining uh, project uh, seems to coincidentally uh, have to do with the fact that the mine is owned by the people that bribed him. Yeah, it just sounds like very, maybe not straightforward, but quite, quite a um, kind of textbook case of corruption for materials. You know what I mean? Yes, indeed. And it's, it's, it's basically that, you know, this is what life is like in Latin America. It's what it's been like in the 60s, basically. It's the same, the same system, the same processes, the same uh, corrupt ideas and the same behaviors from wannabe dictators, essentially. Right. And what's the, what's the government like now in Guatemala? I, I'm completely, um, uh, you know, in the dark about the situation with the government other than this situation. Right. Well, uh, the Guatemalan government is uh, run on a presidential system that was modeled after the American system. We have one president for four years and they have a one term limit. Um, and of course, we have a Congress. And uh, basically what has happened over the last few years is that there ever since the um, in fact, there's there's a there's a intricate relationship between extractivism and the Guatemalan government, obviously. Um, the first Democratic president after the Civil War ended in 1996 was a president named Alvaro Arzu, and he is actually the one that wrote into law the current uh, mining law and regulation that the companies now used to exploit the resources. And ever since then, basically what has happened is there's been one president promising to be, you know, the, the non-corrupt outsider that is going to come out and, you know, drain the swamp, and uh, he'll come in and basically be the same corrupt uh, trash as we've always had. And then the person that was in second place from the last election will usually uh, become the next president promising to drain the swamp and so on uh, for years on end, basically since 90, 1996 till now. In 2015, there was a huge debacle where uh, one of our president, the president Otto Perez Molina, who actually was a former general and responsible for many genocides committed during the Civil War, 
became president and he was basically so, so um, up to his neck in grifts and stealing that he and his vice president and many people in government are either running from law and um, or in prison. And uh, essentially, the, the damage done by that government and everything they stole is still being felt to this day. And the governments that have come since then have also basically been justified with the whole, once again, the drain the swamp narrative that became even stronger because of all the damage this president did. Um, the current president is named Alejandro Yamate, also very corrupt. He was once the, um, what we call ministro de... de the Ministro de Gobernación, basically the uh, internal ministry, like the, the one that runs the police and such, uh, for a previous president. And during that time, he actually committed a lot of uh, extrajudicial murders. Uh, like you can go to certain parts of the city and still ask people about, you know, the, the, the people that were killed for being remotely dressed as gangsters back in the day. And uh, he was actually in prison for a while for extrajudicial killings in prisons that he run ran back when he was in government uh, during one of the previous presidents. And he basically came to the presidency, the current presidency, under a very, you know, hard-fist, uh, tough-on-crime platform. And he basically immediately began mismanaging the country, mismanaging the pandemic. And now he is basically just using the government as a tool of force to defend extractive industry in the country. Wow. Okay. That sounds like a very bad situation then. Um, in terms of the kind of relationship then between the state and the indigenous people, um, has that just kind of flared up because of this nickel mine or, or is it kind of an ongoing thing? I imagine it's more of the latter, right? Yeah. It, yes. It's, it's actually been, uh, it's actually been a uh, consistent and constant problem that this country has had since the 50s, um, when uh, basically, well, not since the 50s, it's, it's been a problem for the past 400 years since the colony. In fact, many of the people who are in economic and political power today are still like heirs of the, the, the colonial slave state that was essentially imposed by the Spanish when they came over, um, you know, back, back when they invaded. So the... Uh, the, the bad relationship between the indigenous communities and the government has been, you know, the, 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 the same story of colonialism that you have always heard. Uh, more recently, basically what has happened is that extractive industries have come in through, let's say, more democratic means, usually supported by uh, the different embassies of the companies, where, uh, of, the, of the countries where these companies come from and so on. And so the, the tension between uh, resistance communities against destructive industry and the government is always constant. And these flare-ups happen all the time. Uh, it is also uh, important to note that uh, since Guatemala is part of the corridor that the narcotraficantes used to bring the, you know, the cartel goods and money from uh, South America through to Mexico and up to the north, um, a good part of the extractive industry is also either a good way for laundering money related to uh, the drug cartels, or uh, in some ways, some of the companies are even set up by drug cartels. And uh, in some cases, even uh, mining licenses have been used to kind of take over certain areas and use them so that they could transport and do certain things um, without the government really uh, turning an eye on them. Um, so yeah, basically, the, the tension is constant and these flare-ups happen uh, once or twice a year, all the time. 
This one seems to be like a particularly kind of watershed moment, though, almost. It, uh, the, the reason why I, I would say that that is uh, a little bit different than other times is because uh, the country is currently going through a situation where um, a lot of the companies are being forced to go back and do uh, these uh, consultation processes that they failed to do earlier. So essentially, there is a lot more of a solid local organization, and the indigenous communities are a lot more educated now about their legal rights and their international treaties that the government has signed. Um, and also, I would say another thing is that the post-war generation of the indigenous communities are coming of age, and this means that their philosophy when it comes to interacting with the government and dealing with these sorts of things uh, is much more mature. And so, basically, I'm, I wouldn't say that this is necessarily a watershed moment, so much as it is very indicative of the changing times and how uh, indigenous communities are starting to respond uh, to these uh, extractive industries and the problems that they cause in their land. Yeah, definitely. So, what's next for the uh, for the indigenous people that are trying to resist this situation with the nickel mine? Um, well, as far as I can tell. Um, they have at least the, 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 the mine has managed at least to get its materials in. So the, these things will continue. Um, however, this has caused there to be a lot more tension around the consultation process that the mine is obligated to go over, um, before they manage to legally reopen the mine. It is also important to note, um, and, uh, the, I, I sent you some maps and I believe that these maps can be published so that, uh, yeah. people can see them. Basically, uh, the eastern third of the country, um, essentially different Mayan communities are now starting to interact with each other because all these mining companies, as they have come to the country and caused the problems that they have caused, different Mayan communities around the country have had basically the exact same experience. And so the amount of people that are willing to stand up for the mine um, has gone down dramatically. And so uh, basically these resistance movements are getting stronger and they're starting to connect with each other a lot better. And that is something very hopeful to look forward to. Yeah. Do you think that things could get um, more violent? Because obviously the roadblocks didn't exactly stop things for very long. If you look at any of the photos they sent in, you know, armored vehicles and stuff like that, um, the government did. Do you think that maybe, you know, the, the indigenous people might have to kind of step it up a level, if you like? I mean, it's not ideal, but, you know, violence is violence. Yes, I understand. One thing I will say is that, uh, for example, if you if you look at the way that the Zapatistas operate, or some of those militias are starting to pop up in in uh, southern Mexico, um, I believe that the culture of resistance that they have there is much different than what is had here. There is a much different idea about how you stand up to things and how you fight for them. Uh, I do believe that there will be a lot more movement on the legal battle side of things. A lot more cases are going to be coming up to the Supreme Court. And the indigenous communities here understand that any more drastic violent action that they take will result in a negative impact in how they are seen from the city in a very centralized country. And eventually it will negatively impact uh, their ability to fight for their rights in the court system, which is still generally the strategy that is being followed. So I would say probably we're not going to see an escalation of the violence. But what we are going to see is continued incidents and events related to this mining project and a great many other mining projects around the country. Um, 
And, and I believe that's what's going to be happening. We're going to see this same uh, relatively small event happening again and again and again over the coming years until things are decided one way or the other. Well, yeah, I was going to ask about that. There are so many different indigenous communities there in Guatemala. Um, and, you know, if you, it's, it's easy to see there are all these mines cropping up all over the place. Do the indigenous people there have some kind of network at least to kind of, you know, share information or tactics or whatever it is they're going to do? There, there are several groups. Um, the, the issue is that um, there has been so much conflict for so long in this country that it is difficult for groups with different interests to uh, necessarily organize and get together and get on the same page. But we are starting to see this happen um, in part because of what I told you earlier, how, um, you know, the, 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 um, the experiences that these different communities are starting to have with all of these mining companies are starting to look very similar in every case. The tactics are the same. The violence is the same. The lies they're being told by the companies are the same. And so um, uh, they, this is starting to foment networks and organization between the different communities. And we are seeing some national level movements, but those are still not quite there. Usually the best way to uh, go about learning um, and organizing these resistant movements are small local level organizations that are starting to connect and communicate with each other, sometimes on a municipal or town level. Right. Um, in, in terms of this nickel mine specifically in this recent situation, what exactly are... Uh the demands of the indigenous people. Obviously, they wanted to stop this going ahead, but now going forward, what are their kind of, you know, their key points? What do they want to do now? Well, um, obviously, uh, the, the large main key point, I would say, is uh, to sim essentially be heard in this consultation process that they have a legal right to. Uh, like I said, the mine claims that they have done two processes before and they're in the process of the third one, but those two first ones were were discounted, right? They don't actually count. So first of all, these communities already see a future where they are not going to be included. And then I do believe that the next step is to understand that there are many people, including members of the New Guatemalan Supreme Court, that have already said that a negative answer on behalf of the indigenous communities with relation to one of these consultations is simply not a veto of the project. So basically, uh, the current demand is to be heard, to be a part of the process, and to be able to somehow uh, have an incidence in whether or not the project goes forward. In the future, when these uh, consultation processes, which are inherently flawed, uh, may, you know, they may fail or they may succeed, but still not represent accurately what the communities are demanding, in the future, then these demands might change. But for now, it is all focused on the fact that several mining projects are going through these consultations, and these consultations in the past and in the present have not been done adequately. So essentially, they just want a say in the business projects that the state delivers into their own land, basically. Uh, not exactly, uh, because basically a lot of people, they're saying we are part of the consultation process, and that gives us a right to say, no, we do not want the project. So the demand is no, and the, the, the vehicle is the consultation process. Right. So they, they basically want to have their rights enforced, essentially. When they say no, it means no. Exactly. Which uh, historically in this country has not been the case, of course. So this is just another iteration of the same conflict as always. The indigenous communities are saying, no, we do not want these things. And uh, the government is basically... Uh, either ignoring or pandering to them in such a way that they want to make them feel heard, but not necessarily 
um, you know, acquiesce to their will. And uh, that, that is basically the, the, the tension that is going on currently with these roadblocks and with the resistance movement. Right. And, and I think for any of our listeners that don't know, um, when, when a mine, I, I've seen it myself. I did, um, some work in Peru years back about, um, they were doing like mining, uh, gold mining in the, in the rainforest. And when, when a mine like this moves in, it isn't a small operation. Firstly, the whole area is like taken over by industry. Secondly, it destroys the environment in a very serious way. And thirdly, most of the people from the area don't really get the profits, you know, from this operation. So it's not a small thing, right? When a mine moves in, it's not like, oh, well, let's just have new jobs. Like, it's a very big issue. That is a very good point, because one of the main problems that we have with this nickel mine is that nickel is not a precious metal. It is not a rare metal. It is actually a base metal. And it is also a base metal that is going to, in the future, become a very important part of the upcoming electric and, uh, and uh, like battery-powered new green energy movement, right? Uh, which, if you listen to indigenous communities around the world, they're very wary of this new green energy movement because it always, in the end, involves extraction of materials from their lands. And in the case of nickel, um, since it is a base material, it means the movement of absolutely enormous amounts of earth. And this nickel mine in particular is actually right next to the largest lake in the country. Uh, and, uh, and this lake is actually an important source of biodiversity, very unique worldwide. Um, another issue that we have also with these, um, the, this uh, nickel mining project is that it is actually something like 12.5 bigger than uh, times bigger than the legal limit. So the actual area that is conceded to the mining company is uh, 220, I believe, four kilometers squared, which is just absolutely huge. It's bigger than our capital city. Mm. Um, yeah, and this is area that they just have the right to tear up as they please over the course of the next uh, 50 years. Um, so, so yeah, and, and they're basically the way that they managed to get the mine to be bigger than the legal limit is that they, they very, very simply justified it, um, by saying, uh, yeah, listen, nickel, uh, it doesn't, uh, give a lot of money compared to other minerals. So we need to be able to tear up more land. And we sent a letter to the ministry that were approved and life moved on. Jesus Christ. This is the problem, right? So you, if you look at, for example, let's say like Tesla, right? I've been reading into this because, you know, personally, I very much believe in saving the environments, you know, rewilding, that kind of thing, but not the way it's going. So if you look at the way it's going with Tesla, for example, right? So, oh, okay, uh, electric cars, that's great for emissions, which, yeah, that is great if, you know, you're in California or London or wherever and you're driving your nice fucking electric car, but nickel is one of the key um, mineral ingredients of the lithium ion batteries that they use in that electric car. So, where do they get that nickel from? Well, now we're seeing it, like indigenous communities having their whole fucking place uprooted so that, you know, people in the West can feel a little bit better about driving their car around. To me, it just seems incredibly kind of backwards and actually corrupt in a way. But what, what I'm thinking is, who are these Russian um, businesses that you were just talking about that are buying and selling this nickel after it's extracted? What do we know about them? Well, we know very little about them, and that's actually part of the problem. Uh, right. So these nickel companies um, came in, uh, like I said, around 2010, and actually the company will deny that they are a Russian company. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, the coordinator for my organization actually went on to local news to discuss this subject, 
and they invited the PR person for the company on that day. And they said, no, we're not a Russian company. And the, the, uh, the news anchor actually said, but aren't all of your owners literally Russian people? And he's like, yeah, but we're not a Russian company. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very sketchy. We're not exactly sure where the money traces to yet and who actually owns the company, but they are linked to a Swiss company called Solway Investment Group, which Solway Investment Group is basically just one of these big anonymous corporations that in the end are owned by um, Russians. And so we actually have copies of, of these people's passports because they have to uh, turn them in as part of the requests for the mining project. And we also have their names registered in the in our national business registry. And essentially, um, yeah, all of, the, all of the owners of the companies are Russians. And in fact, if you go on and you look at other large mining interests that are starting to develop in the country, you will find that there are a series of companies that were founded by geologists who do exploration and then like prepare the, the requests and get the administrative process moving and then basically sell the company to new interests. And essentially, uh, there have been at least four of these companies that we have counted that were um, prepared by actually the same uh, geologist team and then sold to the exact same Russians. The same names are actually in the ownership documents for um, these different companies. So it's not exactly, um, <laughs> they've not exactly hidden that very well, you know what I mean? No, no, they're not, they're not even trying because right. in a country like Guatemala, you do not have to. So what's, what's been the government's response to this recent situation then? Have they kind of reached out to the indigenous community? I, I mean, like politically, rather than sending in the cops to blast everybody with tear gas. Like, where, where are the government standing at this point? Um, essentially, the, 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 the government has historically in this country been basically the force arm of these companies. And so the government has not at all apologized or said it's a bad thing. They're basically maintaining a very a very uh, hard hand, strong-headed, uh, maintain the peace narrative. Um, and essentially, that, that, that is what happened, right? They're they basically saying, no, uh, these people are violating this company's right to operate, which is also like a very common, a common uh, narrative tactic that is used by the right wing in this country, is to say, oh, if you're blocking the roads, you're violating people's right to locomotion and companies' rights to operate. It, and they also, it is very common to call a local indigenous resistance movement terrorists and, right. and actually use, you know, the classic, you know, these are commies, you know, these red commies are here yep. to destroy our capitalist nation, you know, people that are still stuck in, in the first half of the Cold War, you know? Yep. So this is, this is basically mostly what has happened. And in fact, there have been other things, for example, uh, when the police raided the local journalist's home, uh, and they, you know, there are pictures of where, you know, they tore his house to shit and they took all of his recording equipment and uh, they briefly arrested him in front of his family. And there is actually like uh, witnesses to that because that's what they did. And uh, when the Prensa Comunitaria, the local journalist outlet, uh, published a denouncement of what this happened, uh, the police actually published a tweet where they took Prensa Comunitaria's tweet and stamped the words, false in red across it and said this is a lie none of this happened and it very clearly did and evidence of it surfaced later so the government is basically unapologetic uh and in denial that any wrongdoing has been uh carried out so it sounds like it's kind of a, a bit of a um kind of a stalemate at the moment would you say 
Um, I would say that in terms of the general overarching situation where people are dealing with uh, the the status of these nickel mines and whatnot, and the uh, other, the gold and silver mines in the rest of the country, in that sense, I would say that things are progressing very slowly, and we are still waiting to see what is happening. There are a lot of legal operations around the country and so on. But in terms of this actual conflict, I would say the mine has managed to get its material in and has managed to continue operating. And everybody that was in some way um, related to this uh, particular resistance and, and roadblock has either been harassed, had their house searched, or in some way been arrested. There are pictures of, of all the arrests, I believe. Something like more than 100 arrest warrants were carried out in that three-day period that they're allowed to operate without uh, congressional approval. And um, essentially what that means is that, at least for now, in the short time, the nickel company seems to have uh, gotten the upper hand. Um, but that is, let's say that is the state of things here. The company always gets the upper hand, but we live to fight another day, so to speak. And so that, that is basically the state of things now. Well, what, what what does that mean then? I mean, I know obviously you don't mean like violently fight, but I mean, what does that mean for the the community, the indigenous people? Like, what are they actually going to do now? Like, have you any idea? Because, you know, like you said, it's like the machine has kind of kept working and has stopped them essentially. What what are they going to do now? Uh, well, there are certain things. Uh, you said earlier, you know, they're not even trying to hide it. I believe that the government operates under that philosophy as well. They do not really try to hide the things that they do. Um, and in a way that is foolish, because in in many situations around the country where resistance movements have been attacked and, and criminalized, the the government and the police do such a shoddy job of covering up their illegal wrongdoings that eventually, uh, after, of course, copious legal battles, these cases fall apart. Uh, and they sometimes, in very brief cases, manage to, uh, you know, become international cases or become local cases where there is some uh, victory for the local communities. So that, that, that is one thing. The, the, the government and the companies generally are very mediocre and shoddy about OPSEC, very mediocre and shoddy about how they actually go about doing these things. It's very flagrant. And that is a good thing for the communities because it means that they have stuff that they can use to bring together more resistance and to um, manage legal battles that they could actually win. Um, so yes, the, that, that is one side of it. But in the end, uh, these communities, as long as they can, they will keep fighting. And we have seen that throughout the country. And that means if they need to set up a roadblock, eventually, again, they will. And if it is not a roadblock, there will at least be a camp. But there will always be somebody keeping an eye out and trying to keep this fight alive. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's a lot more militant, but a similar kind of thing is happening in... Um, the south of Chile with the Mapuche people, I think it is. They've they, it's a logging situation, but it kind of started the same way, like you know roadblocks, and then eventually that didn't work, and then unfortunately now like it's kind of a full on you know there's a militant um, group down there, and the government again like they've done in Guatemala, they they declared a kind of state of emergency type thing. Um, my worry is that perhaps in this situation in Guatemala, I mean, do, do you think the the indigenous people are perhaps at risk of violence because that, you know, I, I mean, when I, when I covered this situation in Peru, right. Um, it was people in the rainforest that lived there that didn't want people moving into their land and doing like illegal gold mining. 
And one of the guys that I interviewed who was trying to resist it, like a year later, he was killed by these, you know, very clearly who'd killed them. You know what I'm saying? There was no one else around there but this mining community. And then other indigenous people and, you know, various others were getting killed in that area because they were causing too much problems, if you like, for these mining companies. These weren't Russians, they were Chinese mining companies at the time. But anyway, my point is, it's kind of, there's a similar template to these situations, especially in these regions. I mean, do, you, do they, do you think they're worried that, you know, they might become more of a, a more, you know, violent target for the, for the government and these, these companies? Because there's a lot of money here to be made. And you know what, people do bad things for money. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I would say that, um, uh, like I said, this needs to be viewed in the context of of the way that this country has operated for the past century. Um, indigenous communities that have been defending their land rights, defending their natural resources and so on, have essentially been the target of violent extremism and, and violence in general, uh, period. So like, for example, if you look at some of the gold and silver mines that are basically around the corner there, um, people have been murdered by security guards that are currently on the lam. You know, they're right. being looked for by Interpol because they were, they, they murdered people for trying to, you know, block these mining companies. So I would say that, uh, the worry might not be so much that they are now more of a target. They always have been a target. And so operational security is always uh, a prime concern for any of these movements and the way that they are operating. But it also means that since now that they are more in the public eye, more of their faces have been photographed, more of them have been seen. Yes, there is a worry related to that. But I would say when it comes to escalation of violence, I do not know if you could escalate the violence anymore without outright going to war. Right. Yeah. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, okay, mate. Is there anything else you think we should cover with this situation? Yeah, uh, well, I'd say, um, like I said, this is not an isolated incident, mm. and there are many legal and illegal mining companies that are activating now throughout the country. Uh, Canadians, Americans, Russians, you know, no, nobody is innocent. Yeah. And uh, the, the group that I work for, OIE, our job is basically to, to you know, keep, keep, the, keep the horn blowing about these companies. And uh, we, uh, you know, constantly publish more and more information about how these companies operate illegally. Uh, but in the end, basically, Guatemalan extractive industry is ramping up. And I would say that is in some way related to the need for the new green energy industry to evolve and grow. And so this is not going to stop now. It's not going to stop anytime soon. And... Uh, you have to keep your eyes and ears open because, uh, you know, you blink and someone else is trying to dig a hole in your backyard. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a bad situation. Um, okay, mate, well, what's some kind of, um, like, how can people stay ahead of this and keep, you know, keep their mind on it, find out more about it? What's the best way? Okay, well, I, I would point you to, um, when it comes to local journalism in Guatemala, which will always have, I believe, the first most direct and, and most uh, honest view of what is going on in the ground, I would always recommend Prensa Comunitaria. They can be found at Prensa Comunitaria on Twitter. I'll, I'll make sure you get a link for that. There is also a very good investigative journalism outlet called El Observador, which I can also give you a link to. Uh, they are basically investigative journalists that have managed to trace the history of the influence of the Russian uh, nickel miners in Guatemala basically for the past 
six or seven governments. And uh, of course, my organization called uh, OIE, that's at OIE underscore GT. We put out weekly tweets um, on how things are going in the different mining companies and the different things we discovered uh, through uh, government information and uh, open source investigation. And we also have a webpage, which is OIEGT.org, where you can follow uh, mining uh, projects all over Guatemala and a few um, in Central America. We have articles, we have research that we have done, and you can also download any government information we have acquired for free on our webpage. Okay, mate. Well, I'll make sure. Normally, I don't bother. I just get people to spell it out. But if you send me those links on Twitter, um, I'll make sure that everything is kind of in the description um, of this episode. Um, if people want to follow you and your work, where can they do that? Um, my work, you can follow basically through OIE. I okay. work directly for them and everything I, I put out is up on that. All right, mate. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much for the time. Cheers. That was Benjamin Chang speaking about the situation in Guatemala where the indigenous peoples are basically being fucked over for the minerals in their land by the state, by various uh, foreign businesses. It's a nasty situation. I will put the links in the description of this episode um, that Ben mentioned at the end there if you want to find out more. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front and you want more and you want to support us, Remember, we cannot make any money from our documentaries because YouTube demonetized our whole channel because, I don't know, they don't like real life. Um, we can't make any money via Instagram because they don't allow us to do any of that. So the way we make money is via Patreon. We sell extra content on Patreon, bonus episodes, narrated articles. There's a whole series on there instructing people on how to be a reporter if they want to be. Um, there's a community discord, loads of stuff. So go to patreon.com slash popular front. Without the patrons, uh, we, we don't grow. So yeah, patreon.com slash popular front. Or if you want to do it with crypto, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, go to popularfront.co slash support and you will find our wallets there. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 South West Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them Popular Front sent you. The episode was also sponsored by our friends at Grindcore House a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Find them on socials at Grindcore House. The episode was also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world by Prince at propagandopolis.com. Use the promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. If you want to follow us on social media, uh, Instagram at popular.front. Might as well follow the backup as well because we're constantly being censored and they're threatening to take us down all the time on there. So the backup is at popularfront underscore. Twitter at popularfront underscore. Um, YouTube.com slash popularfront to see all our documentaries or just go to popularfront.tv website popularfront.co you'll find links to everything there if you want to follow me uh, on social media it's at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n is how you spell my surname uh, you'll find my work at jakehanrahan.com 
Thank you very much to the following high tier Patreons. They are RA, Champagne Anarchist, Thwat, I don't know if meant to say Twat, I'm not sure, Thwat, Thwat, Elisa Middlefar, Jess, Lewis or Louis, David McManus, Joaquin Williamson Holt, Yudoye Travis, Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate, Lisa Milgram, Bradley Davies, Brendan Crave, Pete Hesher, RX, A. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, K. Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H. Caranti, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, <coughs> Todd Cravens, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Tynan Daly, uh, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawaiz, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormack, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Maurice Zumbo. Thank you all very much. Really do appreciate you keep this going. If you want to uh, support us, patreon.com slash popular front. Oh shit, I forgot. Music in this episode, the intro is by Home and the outro is by Sam Black. Listen to his music at samblackpf.com.